Let's come on in and find a place and we'll get started. Hopefully everyone has notes. You pick them up on your way in. If not, they're right there in the back by the table. Well, before we get started, let's pray. Commit our time to the Lord. Oh, Father, you are good to us, and we're grateful for another opportunity to gather and hear your word and fellowship around your word. We ask that you would enrich our hearts. Father, insofar as we have lost the the sense of the pulse of the blessed hope in our hearts, we pray that you would fire it up again, that you would quicken in us this beautiful truth, that you will not leave us here as exiles and strangers in a strange land. You will come and bring us home. And we pray, Lord, make that truth just turn turn up its heat and its volume so that we are changed, so that our lives are changed for your glory. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, this is the last week of our Doctrinal Essentials class, so I want to thank all of you. Yeah, it's obligatory, isn't it? Yeah. I want to thank all of you for your consistent participation in this, for coming to class after class and Hope that continues as we roll over into the next class. And next week, we're going to have a time of prayer here, so I hope to see all of you again next week. And this class brings us into a branch of theology called eschatology. And eschatology simply means the study of the last things. And it has to do with the coming of Christ and the things that lead up to the coming of Christ. Um, And so that's where we're going this morning. The return of Jesus really is a central tenet of biblical eschatology, I think that this doctrine has fallen on hard times in our day. Even since I was a child, this doctrine, I believe, has fallen on hard times. At least that's my sense of things. Um, Historically, not only in the life of the church, but in the life of the church in the times of Scripture, this was an absolutely core conviction. This was right at the center and among the most precious doctrines that God's people have always been looking for a city whose builder and maker is God, looking beyond this world for that moment when Messiah comes and brings us home. And that has, that has always been a, a precious doctrine for God's people. The church, you can see in Hebrews 11, this is one of the really definitional statements of faith. These all died in faith, not having received the things promised, that is not in this life, not here and now, But having seen them and greeted them from afar, and having acknowledged that they were strangers and exiles on the earth, for people who speak thus make it clear that they are seeking a homeland. If if they had been thinking of that land from which they had gone out, they would have had an opportunity to return. But as it is, they desire a better country that is a heavenly one. Therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God, for he has prepared for them a city. Anthony, I believe his last name is pronounced Herkema, writes the following, the expectation of Christ's second advent is a most important aspect of New Testament eschatology. 
So much so, in fact, that the faith of the New Testament church is dominated by this expectation. Every book of the New Testament points us to the return of Christ and urges us to live in such a way as to be always ready for that return. You know, thinking about this morning and where we were going to be headed in the teaching, I was cutting grass on Monday. And the song that just rose in my heart, and I haven't sung it for years, grew up singing, uh, We're Marching to Zion. Remember that? We're marching to Zion. Beautiful, beautiful Zion. We're marching we're to Zion, that beautiful city of God. Yeah, there you go. You still know it. And that, I sang that song the entire time I cut grass, the entire day. The kids were going, what is that? You keep singing that song. And I've been singing it all week. And God's people have been singing it from the beginning. We're marching to Zion. We're exiles. We're looking for a homeland beyond this world. Turn to 1 Thessalonians 4 and 5. And I think this is going to get that song in our hearts and in our souls. No single text in Scripture covers uh, the full range of what Scripture teaches about Christ's return and what leads up to that return. But this passage, I think we'll see, even as we read it, before we, just, before we even unpack it, I think we'll see that this passage is one of the most beautiful vantage points for seeing the beauty of the truth that Christ is coming back. Chapter 4, verse 13 of 1 Thessalonians. But we do not want you to be uninformed, brothers, about those who are asleep, that you may not grieve as others do who have no hope. For since we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so, through Jesus, God will bring with him those who have fallen asleep. For this we declare to you by a word from the Lord that we who are alive, who are left until the coming of the Lord, will not precede those who have fallen asleep. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a cry of command, with the voice of an archangel, and with the sound of the trumpet of God. And the dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are alive, who are left, will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And so we will always be with the Lord. Therefore, encourage one another with these words. Now concerning the times and seasons, brothers, you have no need to have anything written to you. For you yourselves are fully aware that the day of the Lord will come like a thief in the night. While people are saying there is peace and security, then sudden destruction will come upon them as labor pains come upon a pregnant woman and they will not escape. But you are not in darkness, brothers, for that day to surprise you like a thief. For you are all children of light, children of the day. We are not of the night or of the darkness. So then let us not sleep as others do, but let us keep awake and be sober. For those who sleep, sleep at night, and those who get drunk are drunk at night. But since we belong to the day, let us be sober. Having put on the breastplate of faith and love, and for a helmet, the hope of salvation. For God has not destined us for wrath, but to obtain salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ, who died for us so that, whether we are awake or asleep, we might live with him. 
Therefore, encourage one another and build one another up just as you are doing. I think in this passage, there are three, at least three, essential truths about Christ's return. The first is simply this. Christ's return is certain. Christ's return is certain. Look at verses 13 and 14. We do not want you uninformed, brothers, about those who are asleep, so that you may not grieve as others do who have no hope. For since we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so, through Jesus, God will bring with him those who have fallen asleep. For Paul, notice where he begins. He begins by relating eschatology, your, your doctrine of the coming of Jesus, he relates that to the way that you live. He relates it even to the way that Christians grieve. If we have a right eschatology, if we have a biblical confidence in the hope of Christ's return, we will not grieve as others do who have no hope. This doctrine has everything to do with the way that we live and the way that we suffer in this world. And Paul is writing to suffering people. In Thessalonica, that, that's the whole backdrop. If you've read First Thessalonians, the whole backdrop of this letter is suffering. If you go back, and we're not going to go to that text, but if you go back and read Acts 17, you'll see Paul and Silas coming into Thessalonica. And they come in, they start to preach, and as soon as they begin preaching in Acts 17, the Jews stir up, really, a mob. There's a city riot in Thessalonica, and at night they have to sneak the the Christians there in Thessalonica, sneak Paul and Silas away to Berea. And the Thessalonian Jews were so zealous, they chased these men all the way up the road to Berea. That was not just an easy trip. It was a long way up the road. They chased them all the way to Berea. And so they began in troubled times. And not long after that, Paul says clearly that he was, that's, that he was trying to get back to Thessalonica, but he was hindered. That's why he says in chapter 2, verse 17, since we were torn away from you. That is the mob, the riot. We We had to be evacuated from town. We were torn away from you, brothers, for a short time, in person, not in heart. And we endeavored the more eagerly and with great desire to see you face to face. We tried to get back in. Satan hindered us, he said. And so he knew this is a brand new church. It's a brand new church in a deeply persecuted territory. And, and he had heard back that some of the believers had died. And he was troubled. And he said, I, I, I wonder how that baby church is doing. That suffering, baby, vulnerable church. And he says, when I couldn't figure out any other way to do it, I sent Timothy. And Timothy made it in. And Timothy came back and reported, Thessalonian faith is strong. And Paul wrote 1 Thessalonians in response to that report. But he had also heard, Thessalonian eschatology is off. We have to adjust these people's eschatology because they think that the believers who have died are going to miss out on Christ's return. And so here they are hoping for Christ to come back any day. Lord, we're waiting for you. He says that in in chapter 1, verse 9, for they themselves report concerning us the kind of reception we had among you, how you turned to God from idols to serve the living and true God. And what's their orientation right after turning from idols? is to wait for his son from heaven, whom he raised from the dead, Jesus, who delivers us from the wrath to come. And so there's this Thessalonian church saying, deliver us, deliver us, oh God. And people are dying in their congregation and they're saying, 
these people who died aren't going to see Christ in his victory and his glory because they died before he got here. And so Paul comes in this very passage and he says, I don't want you to be uninformed about what's happening when Christ comes back and about the state of those who have died. They seem to believe in the second coming, but they thought that their brothers and sisters were going to miss out. So Paul, Paul comes and he assures them of two things in our passage. One, he assures them that the hope of Christ's return is not a false hope. You're not hoping and waiting in vain. Notice where Paul goes to prove the certainty of Christ's return. Right in the opening verses. Where he goes is to the past. He goes to history. He goes to the gospel. Right? Since we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so through Jesus, God will bring him with him those who have fallen asleep. In other words, only a sovereign God can speak with the same certainty about the future as he can about the past. Only a sovereign God can say, just as certainly, Christ has died, Christ has risen, Christ will come again. And the latter is not less certain than the former. The former are a matter of history. Yes, but we have a sovereign God. And he is coming back as surely as Christ died. And you know he did 20 years ago. It's not been long. As surely as Christ died and as surely as he has risen, he is coming back. He assures them of this certainty. And then secondly, he assures them that those who are asleep in Christ are not going to miss out. Matter of fact, they're going to have front row seats. Paul says, look at verses 15 to 18. For this we declare to you by a word from the Lord that we who are alive, that is when Christ returns, the ones who are alive, whenever that is, we who are alive, who are left until the coming of the Lord, will not precede those who have fallen asleep. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a cry of command, with the voice of an archangel, and with the sound of the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. The ones that you've been concerned about whether or not they would ever see the victorious kingdom of God coming in the clouds, they'll be the first ones. They'll have front row seats at the return of Jesus Christ. Now, one of the questions that comes up here in this passage is what does Paul mean by asleep? Some argue and and think that this means that the departed believer's existence is one of unconscious uh, soul sleep. And just like when you fall asleep and then you wake up, it seems no time has passed. They say when you die and then Christ returns however much longer after that, when Christ returns, it will seem that no time has passed. But this is not talking about when when the Bible speaks of what happens when the believer dies. It's not that the believer dies and and takes a long, long nap in heaven. The the Bible is clear about what happens. Uh, 2 Corinthians 5.8. Yes, we are of good courage and we would rather be away from the body and at home with the Lord. This is the popular, more popularly put, to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. This is that verse, the classic verse on what happens. Right when you die, you are absent from a body, but you are present with the Lord. Right then, right there. Jesus said to the thief on the cross, today you will be with me in paradise. He didn't say, it's going to seem like today, that you'll be with me in paradise. He said, 
This day you will be with me in paradise. And Paul, first uh, in Philippians 1.22, he says, If I am to live in the flesh, that means fruitful labor. That's what I'll do if I stay alive. Yet which I shall choose, I cannot tell. I'm hard-pressed between the two. My desire is to depart and not go to sleep. (laughs) My desire is to depart and be with Christ, for that is far better. But to remain in the flesh is more necessary on your account. Paul is obviously not speaking here of some kind of unconscious existence in God's presence. The departed believer's experience is not soul sleep. It is immediate, conscious fellowship in the presence of Christ. But... Note this, this is important, without a body, without a body. If, if one of us, God forbid, dies this afternoon, that believer will be consciously in the presence of God, in the presence of Christ, but absent from the body. Present with the Lord, absent from the body. Hebrews 12 But you have come to Mount Zion, to the assembly of the firstborn who are enrolled in heaven, and to God, the judge of all, and to the spirits of righteous men made perfect. Revelation 6, 9. When he opened the fifth seal, I saw under the altar the souls of those who had been slain for the word of God and for the witness they had borne. You ever wonder what it means when Scripture says that Jesus Christ is the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep? Look at that verse in 1 Corinthians In fact, Christ has been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. Obviously, that doesn't mean that Jesus is the first to rise from the dead. Jesus raised people from the dead in his ministry. Now, granted, those people died again, right? He raised Lazarus from the dead, and however however long after that, Lazarus died again. Of whatever cause, Lazarus died again. So does it mean that that Jesus is the first one to rise and never to die again. Well, he is. He did rise and he will never die again. But that's not, that's not the main point. The point is that he's the first one to come out of the tomb, never to go into the tomb again, and to come out of the tomb with a body. That's why it was so significant when he said, Thomas, come, touch me. Touch my hands. Feel the scars. Let's go eat on the beach. And he eats with his mouth, chews with, presumably, his teeth. Jesus has a body. And that, in the New Testament, is the assurance that you and I, in the resurrection, when Jesus descends with a shout, will get a glorified, resurrected body. This means that we're we're not destined to spend eternity in a disembodied state, floating around in heaven. That's, that's not the future. The Thessalonian believers who had died weren't going to miss out. They had something. Our loved ones who have passed on, my dad, my grandma, other members of the family, have something even now to look forward to. Even now, they have to, something to look forward to. The second coming of Christ means a glorified body. The Heidelberg Catechism asked the question, what comfort does the resurrection of the body afford you? The answer, that not only my soul after this life shall immediately be taken up to Christ, its head, but also that this my body, raised by the power of Christ, shall again be united with my soul and made like unto the glorious body of Christ. Interesting passage. Go to Philippians chapter 3 sometime later on where it says that our citizenship is in heaven and from it, from heaven, we await a Savior who will transform the lowly bodies into a glorious body 
like his own. From heaven, there's something to look forward to before the second coming of Christ. So believers get resurrection bodies, and all who are alive when Jesus returns receive glorified bodies. Now, there's another finality at work here. The resurrection of the dead signals the final defeat of the last enemy, the final defeat of death. And before we talk about the the death of death, let's contrast the first coming of Christ from the second coming of Christ. The first coming, his arrival was virtually unnoticed. His second coming will not be that way. Every eye will see him, even those who pierced him. It will be cosmically public. His second coming, you won't, miss it. Matter of fact, that's the reason why Jesus says in Matthew 24, he says, look, if people say, oh, we've seen the Messiah, he's over here in the wilderness, we've seen him, he's in this inner chamber over here, just don't believe them. Trust me, you'll know when I come. You'll know when I come. Don't go follow them. It will be well known. The whole world will see when I come. And he goes on, he says, as lightning comes from the east and shines as far as the west, so will be the coming of the Son of Man. Revelation 1.7, Behold, he is coming with the clouds, and every eye will see him, even those who pierced him, and all the tribes of the earth will wail on account of him, even so. Amen. So there's one massive contrast, the visibility difference between the first and the second coming. The first coming, Jesus was a helpless baby, right, wrapped in swaddling clothes and lying in a manger. He had come to be mocked and scorned. He had come to bear our sins. The second coming, he is not helpless. He is king over all the kings. He is Lord over all the lords. There will be no mocking this time. And he's not coming to bear our sins. He's coming as the judge of all the earth. He's coming as the judge of the living and the dead. He's coming to establish an earthly kingdom. He's coming to make all things new, a new heavens and a new earth. This is, this is so different from the first time, gloriously different. The first coming, another, was relatively quiet. The second coming, even as you see right here in our passage, will be very, very loud. Archangel, trumpet in hand, blast, and it rings throughout the entire earth. That's not the only sound. That's not the most awesome sound. The Lord himself descends with a shout. Jesus Christ, as he comes, is shouting out loud, bellowing throughout his created world. And he's shouting. It's a cry cry of command. You know, for some reason, I always assumed that this was kind of a warrior yell, sort of of whatever Jesus' version of, you know, it it was basically Jesus saying, I'm back. And if you rejected me, you're in trouble. I always thought that that's what Jesus' war cry was. But it's not that. And you see that from the text. The The language of this passage tells us exactly what the cry does. This cry has a purpose. For the Lord himself will descend. Now, let me back up. That we who are alive, who are left until the coming of the Lord, will not precede those who have fallen asleep for. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a cry of command, with the voice of an archangel and with the sound of the trumpet of God. And what's the effect of that cry of command? And the dead in Christ will rise. This war cry, if it's a word, if it's a single word, it's not attack, it's rise. 
and all the dead in Christ come alive, are reanimated. Their bodies are glorified and resurrected. We will not precede them for he will cry aloud. And, and this, this was predicted by Jesus. Jesus told us this is exactly what was going to happen in his ministry in John 5. Do not marvel at this, for an hour is coming when all who are in the tombs will hear his voice. What's he talking about? He's talking about 1 Thessalonians 4. We'll hear the voice of the descending Lord of heaven, and they will come out. Those who have done good to the resurrection of life, and those who have done evil to the resurrection of judgment. What does this cry have to do with the death of death? This resurrection cry spells the end of death. This signals the final decisive defeat of the last enemy, death. Look at this wonderful passage in 1 Corinthians 15. But in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. For as by a man came death, by a man has come also the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ shall all be made alive, but each in his own order. Christ the first fruits, then at his coming, those who belong to Christ. Then comes the end, when he delivers the kingdom to God the Father, after destroying every rule and every authority and power, for he must reign until he has put all his enemies under his feet. The last enemy to be destroyed is death. You know, heaven has waited for this moment since Genesis 3. Genesis 3 at the fall. And when man fell, the verdict that ran through creation was the wages of sin is death. And death dominated the world scene. Death's universal presence was made known throughout God's world. I I love the way that death is personified in 1 Corinthians 15. I heard Pastor Timothy Keller, he's also an author, and he talked about the Lazarus story and how when Jesus approached the tomb, there are two ways to translate the phrase that he approached the tomb with deep feelings, deep emotions. Another translation for that very same word is he walked to Lazarus' tomb furious. Furious. Why? Because as he stared into the tomb, he was looking his last enemy in the face. At least for a moment, he was going to snatch Lazarus out of the jaws of death. But Lazarus would die again. And Jesus knew there's only one way to defeat this enemy. I'm going to die. And John Owen wrote, one of the greatest English Puritans, wrote a classic book on the atonement called The Death of Death in the Death of Christ. Lazarus' resurrection wasn't the final defeat of death. death. Death, if you think about it, you read through story after story. Death has been talking trash to God's people from the very beginning. It's been taunting us. It's been vexing us. It's been causing sorrow and mourning at tombstone after tombstone after tombstone. It has swallowed not only people throughout the world, but people bought by Christ's blood. Abraham was swallowed by death. 
David was swallowed by death and Moses and Joshua and Paul and believers in this church have been swallowed by death. And finally, on this day, in this passage that we're reading, this event, death's day has come. It's, now it's time for death to die. This is, this is his day. And as Jesus descends, he, if you will, shouts in the face of death and taunts death. Death, where is your victory? Grave, where is your sting? This is our resurrected Lord dominating his last enemy. And, and I think the most beautiful aspect of Christ's coming is that we see we who have followed Christ, those who were in this time, the disciples of Jesus' day, they had followed him as the man of suffering, the man of sorrows, acquainted with grief. They saw him humiliated. They saw little bitty soldiers smack him in the face and push him around and they followed him as Lord. And Jesus prays in John 17, Father, let them see the glory I had with you before the world. And guess when we see it? At the return of Jesus, we see another side of our Lord. We don't see him humiliated. We see him highly exalted, glorious. Charles Spurgeon writes, nor will there merely be a difference in his coming. There will be a most distinct and apparent difference in his person. He will be the same so that we shall be able to recognize him as the man of Nazareth. But oh, how changed. Wear now the carpenter's smock. Royalty hath now assumed its purple. Wear now the toil-worn feet that needed to be washed after their long feet that needed to be washed after their long journeys of mercy. They are sandaled with light. They are like unto fine brass as if they burned in a furnace. Wear now the cry, foxes have holes and the birds of the air have nests, but I, the son of man, have not where to lay my head. Heaven is his throne. Earth is his footstool. Ah, who would think to recognize in the weary man and full of woes the king eternal, immortal, invisible? Christ, all glorious, before whom the angels veil their faces and cry, Holy, 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 Lord God of Sabaoth. He is the same, but yet how changed. Ye that despised him, will ye despise him now? (laughs) And that takes us to another finality. The rebellion ended. Flip over to 2 Thessalonians 1. Read a few verses, 5 to 10. This is evidence of the righteous judgment of God that you may be considered worthy of the kingdom of God for which you are also suffering. Since indeed God considers it just to repay with affliction those who afflict you. It's an afflicted church, a persecuted church. And to grant relief to you who are afflicted as well as to us. How are they going to get relief? When the Lord Jesus is revealed from heaven with his mighty angels and flaming fire, inflicting vengeance on those who do not know God and on those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus. They will suffer the punishment of eternal destruction away from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his might when he comes on that day to be glorified in his saints and to be marveled at among all who have believed because our testimony to you was believed. 
I think we would feel this passage more deeply if we lived in a persecuted land. Because this was very close to home for them. They knew what personal affliction was. They knew what it was. They knew what the arenas sounded like. They knew the torture devices. You think about the most radical injustices in history. And the question of skeptics is, where was God? Will not the judge of all the earth do right? God sees all. God knows all. And there is a day of reckoning. And that day is, is this day when Jesus comes and descends in the clouds. This is the judge over the universe. You know, it may have seemed that God was a pacifist when Emperor Nero, just 10 to 15 years after this letter arrived in Thessalonica, Emperor Nero and the, the famous burning of Rome and Nero played the fiddle while Rome was burning, they said. And it was pinned on Christians. And Christians began to be persecuted in large numbers. And Nero would take the Christians and dip them in hot oil, hang them from posts and set them on fire. And he shouted, now you're the light of the world. It may have seemed that God was a pacifist, but God was watching. Nero's day is coming. There is a day of reckoning. God is a God of justice and his justice is going to be fully vindicated on that day. That's why it says those who pierced him will wail on account of him. This is a cosmic oops. We should not have done that. We did not recognize. We should not have rejected him. And Paul is assuring these Thessalonian believers in, in his second letter, he is assuring them it's not always going to be this way. Evil will be judged and banished forever. And notice how effortless this is. You know, chapter 2 um, speaks of the lawless one. You're familiar with the lawless one? And he's, he's empowered by Satan himself. He's doing signs and wonders. He's deceiving many people. But it's just utterly effortless how his rebellion is put down. Second Thessalonians 2, 7 and 8 for the mystery of lawlessness is already at work. Only he who now restrains it will do so until he is out of the way. And then the lawless one will be revealed whom the Lord Jesus will kill with the breath of his mouth and bring to nothing by the appearance of his coming. That's awesome. That is just awesome. We'll bring him to nothing by the appearance of his coming coming. The rebellion will be put down once and for all. And finally, the third thing we learn about Christ's return in this passage is Christ's return consummates God's purposes in history. Back to chapter 5 of 1 Thessalonians, verses 9 to 11. For God has not destined us for wrath, but to obtain salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ, who died for us so that whether we are awake or asleep, we might live with him. Therefore, encourage one another and build one another up, just as you are doing. The the entire redemptive story was leading to this moment. From the very beginning in the book of Genesis, it was all leading to this moment. Not merely to the moment where you were forgiven of your sins and justified before God. Not merely to the moment where on this earth we have peace with God through the blood of Christ. No, no, there is a future. That's why salvation is spoken of in Scripture in three tenses. We have been saved. We are being saved, and we will yet 
be saved. Our redemption, Jesus says, when I come back, look up for your redemption draweth nigh. I thought we've already been redeemed. Yes, yes, we have. But we will be consummately, finally, decisively rescued, delivered from this present evil age when Jesus comes back. And all of history was barreling forward to this end, and it still is barreling forward to that end. What is God's God's appointed end, it is this in 1 Thessalonians 4, 17, and so we will always be with the Lord. That's the end of the story. So we will always be with the Lord. And he says in chapter 5, verse 10, he died for us so that, this is what it was all about ultimately, so that we might live with him. The story of the whole Bible is God bringing his people into his place under his rule. That's how it was in the Garden of Paradise. Perfect fellowship with God. Adam and Eve walked with God in the cool of the garden, in the cool of the evening. That garden was the holy of holies on planet earth. And there was no outer courts. There was perfect fellowship with God and communion with him. There was no marring or distortion. They perfectly imaged and reflected God's glory as in their humanity. And then sin came and we fell and God's curse ran to the ends of the earth. And, and now, ironically, standing at the edge of, of the holy presence of God where man fellowshiped intimately with God, standing at the edge of the garden were angels with swords. And into that cursed world came the first word of promise in Genesis 3.15. The seed of the woman will crush the serpent's head. God was going to raise up one from the seed of the woman. And God, God moved on from Genesis. He selected a people for himself out of all the nations of the world. And through this one who would come, the seed of the woman, he would save a people for himself. And he would bring us back to paradise, back to perfect fellowship with him, And those promises were the hope of Old Testament believers. They're not only the hope of, of you and I, but they're the hope of Old Testament believers waiting for the day when Messiah would come for the very first time. And he came and he lived a perfect life. We know this story, right? It's all related to eschatology. That's all related to this moment that we're looking at in First Thessalonians. And Christ came and he died in our place and he took God's wrath for us. And he rose from the dead and his resurrection was the guarantee of our resurrection, and he sent his spirit for what? He sent his spirit to prepare us for the wedding day. To wash us, to work within us, to change us, to shape us, to beautify Christ's bride. And when Christ comes, our redemption is here. In other words, the the moment, that moment, is the fulfillment of all of God's promises throughout the Bible. All of the promises of God to save a people for himself to rescue a people, are finally realized. He will crush his head. And, and when you read Revelation 20, it's interesting. Where do you see Christ standing? He's standing on the head of the dragon. He's fulfilling Genesis 3.15. All the promises are fulfilled in Christ's second coming. Turn to Revelation chapter 21. And you see the effects of the fall all rolled back and overcome. 
Revelation 21, I'm going to read verses 1 through 6. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them, and they will be his people, and God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. And he who was seated on the throne said, Behold, I am making all things new. Also he said, Write this down, for these words are trustworthy and true. And he said to me, It is done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. To the thirsty I will give from the spring of the water of life without payment. That's the end. That's the fulfillment of every promise of God. That's the consummation of God's saving purposes. And, and that is, you know, we sing the song at Christmas time, Joy to the world, the Lord has come. Let earth receive her king. There's a verse that talks about this moment where God rolls back all the effects of the fall. It says, no more let sin and sorrows grow, nor thorns infest the ground. He comes to make his blessings flow as far as the curse is found. This will be a new heavens and a new earth. And in it, God will be glorified. What does this doctrine do for God's people? Two, very briefly, it creates watchfulness and obedience. Go back to 1 Thessalonians. He says, verse 6, So then, let us not sleep. That is so, in light of the resurrection and the coming of Jesus, let us not sleep as others do, but let us keep awake and be sober. For those who sleep, sleep at night, and those who get drunk are drunk at night. But since we belong to the day, let us be sober, having put on the breastplate of faith and love, and for a helmet, the hope of salvation. I believe that the the great reason that the American evangelical church has lost its way in some ways and has been taken captive by materialism and thirsts for political platforms is because we've forgotten how to sing. We're marching to Zion. We're looking to build the city that we will see there, here. We're looking to claim the blessings, the fullness of blessings, the fullness of health, the fullness of wealth and prosperity that belong to that kingdom here. We've got our eyes so set on the good life here. We've forgotten the blessed hope. We've forgotten to look for a city with foundations whose builder and maker is God. We don't know how to say with Paul, it would be far better to leave and to be with Christ. Sinclair Ferguson says in the early Christian church it was regarded almost as a mark of apostasy not to long daily for the return of Jesus. Hmm. How far we have fallen. Anthony 
Herkimer writes, the loss of a lively, vital anticipation of the second coming of Christ is a sign of a most serious spiritual malady in the church. You know what we've done? We've reversed the song that we sang last week. Turn your eyes upon Jesus. Look full in his wonderful face and the things of earth will grow strangely. We look full in the face of earthly pleasures and the things of Christ, the things of heaven, have grown strangely dim. Who wants to go to heaven? Those who read the New Testament. Those who are grounded in the biblical hope of Christ's coming want to go to heaven. You know, I... I think C.S. Lewis strikes some beautiful chords along, along these notes. And um, you know, we try to make this world so comfortable. And I think in our effort to make this world comfortable, the reason we can't make this place feel like home is because it's not home. Uh, C.S. Lewis wrote, and he said that, you know, if I find in myself a desire that nothing in this world can satisfy, then I'm only left to conclude that I was made for another world. I was made to live in God's presence. Fullness of joy. The second thing that this gives us is not only watchfulness and obedience, but encouragement and hope. Verse, chapter 4, verse 18. Therefore, encourage one another with these words. What words? Words about the second coming. We should be talking to each other about the blessed hope, the coming of our Lord. And then look at verse 11. Therefore, encourage one another and build one another up just as you are doing. I think for the New Testament writers, there's nothing stranger than a hopeless Christian. A hopeless Christian is one who has taken his or her eyes off of the return, the certain return of Jesus and what comes with that return, the blessings that come, the fulfillment of all God's promises. We take our eyes off that day. Scripture reminds us that that day is coming. But scripture does more than remind us that that day is coming. Scripture tells us to remind each other that that day is coming. And what does that, what does that sound like? I think it sounds like standing next to each other when we're in a difficult situation in a hard trial and saying, weeping may endure for the night, but joy comes in the morning. Today we suffer, tomorrow we feast. Another version, we're marching to Zion. Beautiful, beautiful Zion. This is our hope. This fills our hearts. This changes our lives. That, this is the final chapter of God's redemptive story. C.S. Lewis writes, The things that began to happen after that were so great and beautiful that I cannot write them. And for us, this is the end of all the stories. And we can most truly say that they all lived happily ever after. But for them, it was only the beginning of the real story. All their life in this world and all their adventures in Narnia had only been the cover and the title page. Now at last, they were beginning chapter one of the great story, which no one on earth has read, which goes on forever, in which every chapter is better than the one before. Let's pray. Oh, Father... Sweeten this truth in our hearts. Oh, teach us how to sing. Again, to sing with with the glorious vision before us. When Christ shall come with shouts of acclamation.
and take me home. What joys shall fill my heart. Oh, we look for that day. Lord, cause our hearts to say, Maranatha, come quickly. Cause us to feel in our hearts what these believers felt when they contemplated the Lord Jesus descending from heaven with a shout and a cry of command, ushering in that glorious day that we've been waiting for since the day we believed. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you.